Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is risen. He is risen indeed. It's an ancient greeting and reply for Christians on Easter morning. And historically, the Christian church has paid, has paid special attention to Easter Sunday. In the early centuries after Pentecost, new converts who had undergone three years of catechism instruction often professed their faith and were baptized on Easter Sunday. And the apostle says in the beginning of this chapter 15 in verse 3, that these are things which are things of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Now, every Lord's Supper, the church remembers the death of the Lord. And every Sunday, the church celebrates the resurrection of our Lord. And yet, in the annual cycle, Special attention is paid to these great redemptive acts of God in Christ, his death and his resurrection. And we know from ancient records that the apostles themselves remembered the Lord's death and resurrection also on a yearly basis. These acts, these great mighty acts of redemption, the death and resurrection of Christ are, says Paul, of first importance. They're not nice stories, nice myths that we've made up to comfort us in this broken and hurting world. But they are rather fundamental, historic truths which are foundational to our faith. And if you have your Bible open and you look at verses 3 and 4, and you see those lines, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. You see the faint outline of the creed, a part of the creed that we profess every Sunday. These are basic foundational truths of the Christian faith. They are what we believe and know to be true, and if they are not true, then our faith is useless and meaningless. And you look there in verse 17, just before our text, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If, if Christ and his resurrection is not a historic fact, then we might as well pack up, close the doors of the church, and just forget about everything. But how do we know? How do we really know that Christ's death and resurrection are real historic facts? We don't have videos. We don't have photos of the event. And even if we did, nowadays you can deep fake anything. But what we do have, is we have eyewitness testimony. That's the gold standard for confirming any fact. And there are very few events in ancient history that have as much confirmation by eyewitnesses as the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, we read the Gospel of Luke about the resurrection. And what is striking is that the first to witness the resurrection of our Lord were our sisters in Christ, the, the women. And that's striking because in the first century, in Jewish culture, the testimony of women was not considered reliable. In the judgments of the Jews, it simply was not considered enough for a woman to testify to something. And yet, in the Gospels, as we read there in Luke chapter 24, it is the women who first testify to the resurrection. Now, if you're going to make up a story, if you're going to make up a great myth that you hope that people believe, the last thing you're going to do in the first century there in Palestine, the last thing you're going to do is write that the women were the ones who testified to this fact. And so that's one amongst many signals of the truth of the resurrection. And here in our chapter 15, there in the verses 5 through to 8, Paul lists many other witnesses, hundreds of them. And he ends up with all the apostles. And that refers not just to the 12, but the, the entire first generation of gospel preachers. They were all men who had seen with their eyes the glorious appearance of our risen Lord. And they delivered this to the churches. Look there in verse 3, I delivered what I also received. They delivered it. The word deliver there is, if I make up a word in English, traditioned. Paul says, I traditioned to you as of first importance what I also received. And tradition to, the word means to give over, to pass something along. And so that's what the apostles did. They saw, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and they passed on their testimony by preaching it to the churches and by recording it in the scriptures. And through the apostolic record, they have passed on this eyewitness testimony right down to us that Christ is risen. And that's a fact. Now, why is this so important? because it is the very heart of the gospel. Because as Paul said there in, in verse 17, if this is not true, then we're all going to die in our sins and we're wasting our time being Christians. But, says our text, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is an incontrovertible historic fact. And I want to emphasize that because we live in a postmodern world in which everybody is happy to allow you your beliefs as long as they're kept to yourself. They're willing to accept anybody believing anything. And they're willing even to say that's a very nice story you Christians have but they're not willing to accept that the Christian faith is based on historical facts. Now, the apostle calls the Lord Jesus raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
We need to understand what he's referring to by heading back to the Old Testament. If you have your Bible handy, Leviticus chapter 23, which is a list of all the, the feasts of God's people, beginning with the, the weekly feast, the Sabbath, and then going into the annual feasts. And there in Leviticus chapter 23, we see after the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest, we see the Passover. And of course, we know what the Scripture says about the Passover. The Lord Jesus was sacrificed on the Passover. The Lord Jesus, says Paul, is our Passover lamb. Because of his shed blood that the avenging angel passes over us, judgment is no longer ours. We are saved from the condemnation of God. So he's our Passover lamb. The Lord Jesus fulfills the Passover. And in that little paragraph about the Passover, hidden in it, if you have your ESV Bible in front of you, is also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's verse 6. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover were kind of together. A week, Passover and Unleavened Bread. They came together. And, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread meant that you had to, you had to get rid of all the leaven in your house. Because leaven in the scriptures is a picture of sin. And that had to be expelled from the houses and the lives and the homes of God's people. And so the Lord Jesus does not just fulfill the Passover by being our Passover sacrifice. He also fulfills the feast of unleavened bread by getting rid of our sin. We know it no more. It is nailed to the cross. It is gone. It is no longer held against us. So the Lord fulfills the Passover. He fulfills the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then you look there in verse 9, if you've got your Bible open in Leviticus 23, and there's the Feast of Firstfruits. Now the, first of, the Feast of Firstfruits happened in the same time as Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It happened on the day after the Sabbath of that week. So that would be the Sunday. That would be the Sunday Easter Sunday upon which the Lord Jesus rose. On that day, on that Sunday, ever since the Old Testament, there was the Feast of First Fruits. And in that feast, the first sheaves of the early harvest were presented before the Lord. And it was first fruits because these were the very first things from the harvest, but there was a lot more to come. There were second fruits and there were third fruits. There was a lot more to come. This is just the beginning. And so you understand, if we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the Lord Jesus fulfilled the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits. On that very Sunday, that for hundreds and hundreds of years, more than a millennium, the first fruits of the harvest were presented to God. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of a mighty harvest of men, women, and children saved by the power of God from death and from sin. Jesus, the first fruits. So Jesus' resurrection is the first of many. And you notice how the apostle describes death here in verse 20. He describes it as falling asleep because the Christian way of talking about death 
is to talk about it as something which is not terminal. It is not the end. Because in Christ, death is no longer the punishment. It is no longer the definitive end. But in Christ, death is resting in expectation. It is sleeping in the arms of Jesus because Christ is risen. And because he has risen, we will most certainly rise from the dead. Death is the wages of sin. And so death cannot hold on to people who have no sin. And so therefore, for the Christian to die is to fall asleep. And Paul continues there in verse 21, As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. And he portrays before us here the massive <clears throat> reversal in the created universe caused by the death and resurrection of our Lord. For thousands of years, the human race has been sentenced to live under the fear and the judgment and the condemnation of death and all of human life from the very beginning, from birth onwards, is a constant dying and everything ended in death and the grave. But now, the Lord Jesus ushers in a new age. He turns things right around. And he brings about the resurrection of the dead, the way back from the grave to life. Now, how does that work? Well, look there in verse 22, where as in Adam, all die. Adam was not a private individual. He was the federal covenant representative of the whole human race. And his decision to sin plunged us all into darkness and death. By a man came death, in Adam all die. Now what kind of a head of the human race was Adam? What kind of a head of the human race is Adam? Well, he is a dead, decaying head. In Adam, the human race is a rotting corpse. Every human being who is, who is in Adam is literally walking dead. And every day, their bodies and minds break down further and decay. And they become more and more like Adam, corrupted and rotted in the grave. They become more and more like that. In their bodies, in their minds, in their souls, their actions reflect who they are, darkness and decay and, and the deathly stench of sin. And it gets worse and worse. And the sinner in Adam becomes more and more decayed and more and more dead until finally the body is totally dead and then it continues forever in everlasting darkness. That decay and that death goes on forever. For as by a man came death, for as in Adam all die. But then there is the opposite. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now what kind of a head of the human race is Christ? He is living. He is full of life. And everyone in him is living. Every man, woman, and child in Christ is alive. And that gives us a future hope. 
You remember what Jesus said to Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's our future hope, guaranteed by the resurrection of our Savior. And so although we live in a world where we still get sick, and we get diseases, and we suffer pain, and we get old, and our bodies and minds break down, and if Jesus doesn't return first, we eventually even die and go back to the dust. But for the Christian... These things are not definitive. For the Christian, these pains of this broken world that we feel in our bodies are but the birth pangs of the new life because the grave is not where we end up and stay because the tomb is empty, because the grave cannot hold us, because Christ is the first fruits, because we fall asleep in Jesus in the full certainty that when we wake up, that when we awake, we shall see his face. You see there, then the radical difference between the Christian and the unbeliever. For the Christian, all of the pain, all of the suffering of this present life are birth pangs. And you know how birth pangs work. Our sisters know that very well, those whom the Lord has granted children, that it hurts. And that it is terrible pain. In fact, the Bible often uses the travail, the pains of a woman in travail, to describe the very worst suffering. And yet, it is a suffering which brings them to new life. And when that new life is here, then all that suffering is forgotten very quickly. And so even though we as Christians, we get cancer like the unbelievers get cancer, we get dementia, our bodies break down, we suffer from unremitting pain, we suffer these things in a different way. For us, they're birth pangs of the new life. And for the unbeliever, they are tastes of what they will experience for all eternity. A massive difference there. And that massive difference we find in the resurrected Savior. So there's a future hope, but there's a present hope too in the resurrection. And this is important, that Jesus died for my sins to give me a new life. And, and, and there, are, there are some Christians who don't get that. There are some Christians who think that the whole gospel thing works this way, that I'm a sinner, I deserve hell. Jesus died and took my sins. And so now, seeing that he's going to take care of that, I can just go living my selfish, worldly life. I can give myself over to the fleeting, sinful vanities of this present world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, because Jesus will pay the bill. And every time I sin and I feel a little bit bad, I go to Jesus and say, Jesus, wipe out my sins. And then I go right back to sinning. And at judgment day, Jesus will pay the bill when it comes in. 
That's not exactly how it works. If you have your Bible handy, turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through to 13. I'm going to read a few verses there. Romans 6, 1 through 13. The apostle says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What is Paul saying? Well, look there at, at verses 3 and 4. He's saying that baptism connects us to Jesus. Baptism identifies us with Jesus. Baptism tells us that we belong to Jesus' body and soul. We live in him. He lives in us. We are united with him in everything. And that means that everything he did, you participate in. He died, and the old you died. Your old nature was crucified on that cross, and he rose to a new life. And in him, we were raised to new life. In the Lord Jesus Christ, our baptism declares it. We carry it everywhere. Our baptism declares that we are dead to sin, and we are alive in Christ. Now, the Christian life is not about keeping our old nature on life support, feeding it, petting it, nurturing it, cultivating it. That's not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is mortifying the flesh, killing, crucifying the old nature, and embracing the power of Christ's resurrection. Embracing the power of that gospel truth that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if the risen Lord Jesus Christ lives in me, then I have the power of resurrection, victory, victory over sin. 
and temptation and the devil and the world and the flesh because in Christ I have been made alive. And though my outer nature wastes away, inwardly I am being renewed day by day. I am being made alive more and more. And so that is the promise and the guarantee of the resurrection of our Savior for you, child of God, that no sin can enslave you, that no shackles of sin and death can hold you in deep despair and bind you tightly because Jesus has broken the shackles of sin and death. And Jesus has saved your life from death's abyss. And Jesus has set you free. And Jesus has dried your tears. And he guides your feet to keep you from stumbling. And he gives you grace so that you can live. In Christ, you have been made alive to walk before his face in the light of life. And that principle of the new resurrection life makes you alive more and more. It works in you from the inside out until one day even your body will be made alive to be like his glorious body, free from pain, free from all the consequences of the brokenness of this sinful world. And that being made alive in Christ grows and grows in us and eventually changes and glorifies our bodies, but it, it just keeps getting better into all eternity. We will live and live more and more widely and deeply and intensely the life that never ends. There will be no static moment where we hit the end. But the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, will well up in us and transform us more and more into all eternity. This is the certain hope of the gospel for you. This is the new life that you taste and live the beginning of even now. Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.